Good morning. I'm glad to be able to be here with all you sturdy New Englanders. So thank you for coming out on this balmy Sunday morning. <laughs> Ordinarily, when you make a cake, especially if it's a new recipe, you pay attention to the recipe. You want to do things in the proper order so that the cake will turn out like the picture in the cookbook appears. It's a good idea to blend the butter and sugar before you throw in the flour. Don't forget the salt and baking powder. Let the cake cool a bit before you put the frosting on it. If you follow the recipe, you may get results that will satisfy everyone who eats your cake. In the New Testament letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers who have found salvation in Jesus. In chapter 1, he tells them about everything God has done to make that possible. He prays for them, the prayer that Jared just read for us, that they would understand more and more about what God has done. And then in the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul speaks directly to these believers. He doesn't give them a recipe, but the order in which he describes how salvation has come to them is significant. He wants these believers to remember, treasure, and keep responding to what God has done and what God will continue to do in their lives as his children. It's that part of Ephesians I want to read this morning. If you're looking on in a pew Bible, it's page 1159. Ephesians chapter 2. This is God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul begins by reminding the Ephesians what they were like without Christ. Notice what he emphasizes about human beings in verse 1. They are dead in their sins. Physically, they are alive, but spiritually, they are dead toward God. And this doesn't just describe all those bad people out there. This is every single one of us who have breath and live on God's earth. We are dead in our sins. What is sin? Sin is that attitude of saying, I'm God, 
I'm in charge. I'm the boss here. We are sold that gospel everywhere we look these days. We're constantly being told, stand up for your rights. Be true to yourself. Don't let anybody push you around. And that's what Paul means in verse 2 when he talks about the course of this world. That's where the world is taking us and trying to lead us. We learn those attitudes from the people around us. We breathe it on the internet and social media. We express it in our selfish interactions with our family members. We express it when we have power struggles with people that we work with. We express it when we speak trash about our brothers and sisters. And in all these ways, we express our deadness in our sin. We are captive to that attitude. But Paul goes on in verse 2 and reminds us that there's also a powerful personality who is trying to persuade us to believe that we are God and we are in charge. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air referring to Satan, the devil. The Ephesians once lived by Satan's standards alone. That's all they could do. But they have been set free by him, by God, from Satan's power. But still, Satan has power, and he will constantly try to persuade you to live according to your own ideals, to raise yourself up against God, to put yourself above others. And in that sense, we are still, in some ways, captive to him. But as much as you are influenced by the world of people around you, as much as you are persuaded by Satan to follow his evil designs, Paul says something even more disheartening in verse 3. Sin is in each one of us. He refers in verse 3 to the passions of our flesh. And by flesh, Paul doesn't mean our physical body, our skin, the parts of our humanness. He means that attitude within each one of us that is fleshy, earthy, the attitude that says, I will be God. I will raise up above others of his creatures. So it is that attitude of rebellion against God. So what is Paul saying in these first three verses of Ephesians 2? He's saying salvation begins by recognizing that you are influenced by people around you, by the evil designs of Satan, but also because you choose your own way over God's. And you and I are constantly living according to our flesh, going our own way. None of that means that any of you are as bad as you could be. Most of us here are reasonably decent human beings. But it does mean that every part of you is corrupted by that attitude that says, I will be God, I will be in charge. In verse 3, Paul says, our desires are impacted by our sin, our motivations, what we really live for. He says, our mind is corrupted by our sin, the way we think and process life is impacted by this attitude of being in charge of the world around us. And then we carry out actions and behaviors and live out relationships that are consistent with those attitudes. So what do you get when you mix together all of those ingredients? 
Paul says at the end of verse 3 that the result of all of that is that we deserve God's wrath. We are under judgment because of our sin. What do you hear? Or maybe what do you feel when you read that word wrath? For some of you, it might take you back to when you were a child and you had a parent that was constantly blowing their stack and you never knew what you would do or not do that might set them off next. But when the Bible speaks about God's wrath, God's judgment against sin, it's not talking about some explosive outburst like that. That God just says, that's it, I can't take them anymore. And he erupts all over the place. That's not what Paul means when he speaks of God's wrath. It's not an uncontrolled outburst. It is rather an expression of God's love. God can't love dead sinners unless he also hates the evil that grips us and that holds us captive. So if you take this first ingredient seriously, all human beings are dead in their sins, then it can lead to humility toward other sinners. In this sense, you can look at any other sinner on the planet and you can say to your soul, you know what? If God can forgive me, he can forgive them. And in that way, you can become more compassionate toward other sinners, maybe even to pray for other sinners rather than yelling at them or sitting in judgment against them. Part of what Paul is saying here is that the people in this world who aggravate you the most are not people trying to ruin your life or ruin your church. They are sinners in need of God's grace. And they can find that through Christ. So if Paul's description is true here, then those people out there who aggravate you the most are actually more like you than unlike you. Because like every human being on the planet, they are dead in their sins unless God works and changes them. If you're someone who doesn't yet believe in Jesus, these words are not necessarily meant to make you feel really badly about yourself. Other people may get frustrated at you because of your sin, but your sin doesn't scare Jesus away. And that's part of what Paul points to next, beginning in verse 4, that there is actually hope for sinners who are dead in their sins. And there is good news for sinners like all of us. So Paul begins in verse 4 to talk about what God himself has done to satisfy his own wrath, his own judgment against our sin. Because he wants us to have more than just the right perspective on our sin. He wants us to know that there is help and hope for dead sinners. And maybe the most amazing ingredient in salvation is that God himself moves toward dead sinners. But why in the world would God do that? Why would God love people who are dead in their sins, who in many forms and fashions raise their fist against God and say, nope, you're not in charge, God, I'm in charge. Or maybe you are in charge, God, 
but you're not running the world the right way. Why in the world would God love people like that? People like you and people like me. And Paul writes in verses four through seven that it has everything to do with who God is. Notice some of the words Paul uses. In verse four, he speaks about God's mercy. He speaks also in verse four about his great love. And then in verse seven, he talks about the richness of God's grace and God's kindness. And Paul joins with the Ephesian believers in rejoicing at who God is and what he has done. Over and over, Paul talks about we and us, and God has done this for us. So Paul isn't just giving the Ephesians a theological treatise. He's actually rejoicing together with them in what God has done and fulfilling a little bit of that prayer that he prayed for them at the end of chapter one, that together, we all who believe in Jesus would rejoice in what Christ has done for us and what he continues to do for those of us who are his children. So how can a person who is dead in sin respond to God if God himself makes you alive? And God certainly has the grace, the kindness, and the mercy to want to make you alive. But does he have the power to make dead sinners alive? And Paul writes, especially in verse 6, yes, absolutely yes. He refers in verse 6 to the power that God showed when he raised Jesus from the dead. And it is that same power that God demonstrates to take dead sinners and to make them alive. Notice some of the things that Paul writes God does for dead sinners. In verse 5, he says he makes us alive. If you are in Christ, you share the life that Christ received when he was raised from the dead. Then in verse six, he says he raises us up with him. He does for you what he did for Jesus when he raised Jesus from the dead. And then in verse six, he also says, he seats us with Jesus in the heavenly places. If you are in Christ, you're joining to him, your participation with him, is so real, so intimate, that you are there with him right now in his presence. And yes, obviously you still are living here on this earth. So your final resurrection hasn't happened yet. But Paul says it actually has happened. You are that closely connected to Jesus because of what he has done when he made you his child. And through the same power that God showed when he raised Jesus from the dead, he makes it possible for you to respond to his love. Why would God do all of this for sinners who rebel against him? I wouldn't do this for people like me or even good people like you. But Paul shows us another reason that God does this for dead sinners in verse 7. Look at that scripture again. God does all of this for dead sinners so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
God does all of this so that you will marvel at his grace and kindness to you. And you will be a demonstration of that grace throughout all eternity. It's as if God will say, look at what I can do with that mess called Glenn Burns. And people will go, your grace is amazing because only your grace and kindness could do that to a dead sinner like that. And Paul sounds in verse seven like he's running out of ways to say how amazing God's grace is. So he simply says he has immeasurable riches of grace. If you stopped by my house, usually once a week, you would find me measuring my riches. Do we have enough in our checkbook to pay our bills? Are we sticking pretty closely to our budget? If we've received an unexpected bill, is there some place in there I can squeeze out a little extra to pay that? And I do all of that regularly because my riches have a limit. They will run out eventually. Can you feel what Paul is saying? You can't measure grace that can take dead sinners and make them alive. Go ahead and try to measure it. That's why God in his kindness gives us scriptures like these that we can reflect on. But God's kindness is bottomless. It never runs out. So if you have found this grace, then praise him for it. And then praise him some more. That will be your mission throughout eternity in the new creation. But start now by praising him for his immeasurable grace to you, a sinner. If you haven't yet found this grace, then part of what Paul is saying to you, there is more than enough of his grace to cover your sin. There is more than enough of his kindness to make you alive as well. No matter what you've done, no matter where you are, there is hope because of Jesus and what he has made possible. So what do you contribute to this recipe that can take dead sinners and make them alive? You contribute sin and spiritual death. What does God contribute? Everything. Grace, kindness, hope forgiveness, mercy, love, without end. And if that seems too good to be true, then you're starting to get it. You're beginning to understand why Paul is amazed at God's grace. Because there is no love like God's anywhere on this planet. A love that doesn't first stop and calculate what's in it for me if I love that person. God's love doesn't make that calculation. So if it doesn't seem fair that really selfish people, really bad, mean, rotten, evil to the core people could find forgiveness through this grace of God, then you're catching a sense of why Paul is so dazzled by what God has done. And Paul takes all of that amazement 
and he brings it right down into the lives of the Ephesians and into the lives of all of those who have found this grace through Christ. How does this amazing salvation come to dead sinners? Look again at what Paul writes in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation comes by grace, God's love that goes out to dead sinners like you and me. And then Paul says salvation comes through faith because God's work in your life includes your response of trust and belief in what he has done. And again, the order is meaningful. Salvation comes through faith, not because of your faith. And Paul is continuing to emphasize over and over this, all of this is God's work and God's gift to dead sinners. And it has to be God's gift because you are dead and you couldn't move towards God unless he himself makes you alive. So Paul is writing here that salvation doesn't come because of anything that you do. Salvation doesn't come because of anything you refrain from doing. Salvation doesn't come as a reward because you are a good person. Salvation doesn't come because you are less of a sinner than other sinners. You and I often boast about our goodness because honestly, there are some really bad sinners out there these days and it's pretty easy to find somebody that you are better than. And we find satisfaction in boasting about how good we are or at least I'm better than that guy. But Paul writes here that the only one who can boast is God himself, because it is all his work. It is all of his grace, and we rejoice in what he has done. Have you received this grace by responding in faith? Then Paul writes in verse 10 that there's one more response that is a part of walking with Christ. Salvation does not come because of your works, but works do have a role in your salvation. They are the fruit of salvation, the result of your salvation. Look again at how Paul writes that in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God doesn't just make you alive in Christ. He continues to do his work throughout your life here on earth. So much so that Paul can call believers in Jesus God's workmanship. F.F. Bruce said about this phrase that Christians are God's works of art. And that means that the Christian life that you try to live out each day is not just grinding out your duty. It's a response to the work God is doing in your heart. That means that if you are in Christ, you are his workmanship, not your own. 
and the works you do after salvation are not so people can look at you and say, whoa, aren't you impressive? It's so they can look at God and be dazzled by his grace in your life as a sinner. And to be sure, we are all incomplete works, massively incomplete. But if these words are true, then God is working in you if you are his child. And he has prepared this work beforehand. It was always a part of his plan that his true children would work in response to his work in their lives. And throughout this letter to the Ephesian believers, Paul gives example after example of what those works might look like. It includes boring things, like working hard so that you can serve other people. It includes forgiving other sinners when they sin against you. It includes using your words to build others up instead of tearing them down. It includes singing with joy to the Lord for what he has done. It includes husbands willingly sacrificing themselves to show to their wives the love of Christ. It includes children obeying their parents. Now don't hear what Paul is not saying. He's not saying God kicks in the grace and then for the rest of your life, you do all the work so that you can pay him back for the grace he has shown to you. What Paul is saying is that all of the Christian life is God's grace. And the good works that you do in response to his work actually put you more and more in debt to his grace because all of it is God's gift to sinners. Salvation is God's gift. Faith is God's gift. The works you do after you come to faith are God's gift to dead sinners. So how are you responding to his ongoing work of grace in your life? Are you pretty much the same person you've always been? You just do a few more things at church? Maybe another way to think about it, what are you relying on for your salvation? Do you find yourself talking more about your goodness or talking more about God's goodness? What Paul is saying is that salvation doesn't come to good people who just needed a little push. Salvation comes to people who are absolutely dead in their sins and are willing to admit that to God and cry out to him for help. Maybe you're someone who believes in Jesus, but you feel like right now you're stuck. You can't see a way forward. Maybe you acknowledge there's pockets of pride and arrogance that you enjoy holding on to. Maybe a sin that you're struggling with or maybe not struggling with and you should be. If that's you, and you're really God's child, don't lose hope. Because if what Paul is saying is true, God is at work in you. But if you really feel stuck, and you can't see a way forward, 
then reach out to a friend in Christ and say, would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? Would you encourage me to keep responding to what God is doing in my life and what he wants to do in my life going forward? Maybe you're someone who's pretty new to church. You're not sure if you believe in Jesus. You're not certain if you actually agree with God that you are dead in your sins. Then Paul's words to you would be, keep considering who you are in light of who God himself is. Pray that you would be able to see clearly what is really true. If you're someone like that, then the good work God calls you to is to believe in the salvation that he has made possible through his son, Jesus. Marion Latad told about a time when she was younger. Her dad used to keep a coin jar on his dresser. Every night, Marion would hear the jingling of coins. Her dad would come home from work, take all the loose change out of his pockets, and drop it in that coin jar. When Marion was about nine years old, she started taking a few nickels here, a few pennies there from her dad's jar. Eventually, she completely swindled her dad out of all of his loose change. He never even noticed. But later, Marion felt guilty. She knew she had been stealing. So she writes a note apologizing to her dad. She asks forgiveness. She sticks the note under the coin jar, along with a fistful of pennies as restitution. She waits for her dad to confront her. Day after day goes by. He doesn't say anything. After a while, Marion completely forgets about her note. But then one day, her dad steps into her bedroom. Marion's heart starts pounding. Her palms get sweaty. Her throat goes dry. Her dad says, thank you. I do forgive you. He hugs her, and he leaves her room. And they never speak about it again. Marion sat there in her room, and she was amazed. She expected her father's anger. She deserved her father's anger, but he shows mercy. Marion felt like a criminal who was set free. And that's what grace feels like. Praise God for his kindness. He knows how much of a sinner you are, but in Jesus, he can love and forgive you. Would you pray with me? We bless you, Lord, for your immeasurable grace. Would you teach us to treasure who you are? Would you teach us to treasure what you have done and what you continue to do in our lives through Jesus? Thank you for mercy that we have never known. Thank you for showing us a love 
that we have never seen anywhere else. We worship you and we bless you for your immeasurable kindness. Amen.